Section 3 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Pessimism and the Ideal of the Sublime Life At the close of the Middle Ages, a sombre melancholy weighs on people's souls. Whether we read a chronicle, a poem, a sermon, a legal document even, the same impression of immense sadness is produced by them all. It would sometimes seem as if this period had been particularly unhappy, as if it had left behind only the memory of violence, of covetousness and mortal hatred, as if it had known no other enjoyment but that of intemperance, of pride, and of cruelty. Now in the records of all periods misfortune has left more traces than happiness. Great evils form the groundwork of history. We are perhaps inclined to assume without much evidence that, roughly speaking and notwithstanding all calamities, the sum of happiness can have hardly changed from one period to another. But in the fifteenth century, as in the epoch of Romanticism, it was, so to say, bad form to praise the world and life openly. It was fashionable to see only its suffering and misery, to discover everywhere signs of decadence and of the near end, in short, to condemn the times or to despise them. We look in vain in the French literature of the beginning of the fifteenth century for the vigorous optimism which will spring up at the Renaissance, though, by the way, the optimist tendency of the Renaissance is sometimes exaggerated. The exulting exclamation of Ulrich von Houten, which has become trite from much quoting, O seculum, O litterae, juvat vivere, O world, O letters, it is a delight to live, expresses the enthusiasm of the scholar rather than that of the man. With the humanists, optimism is still tempered by the ancient contempt, both Christian and Stoic, for the world. A passage extracted from a letter written by Erasmus in 1518 may serve better than Houghton's exclamation to show the average valuation put upon life by a humanist. Quote, I am not so greatly attached to life, having entered upon my fifty-first year. I judge I have lived long enough. And on the other hand, I see in this life nothing so excellent or agreeable that a man might wish for it, on whom the Christian creed has conferred the hope of a much happier life in store for those who have attached themselves closely to piety. Nevertheless, at present, I could almost wish to be rejuvenated for a few years, for this only reason that I believe I see a golden age dawning in the near future. Unquote. He then describes the concord reigning among the princes of Christendom, and their inclination to peace, which was so dear to him personally. Then he continues, quote, Everything confirms my hope that not only good morals and Christian piety will be reborn and flourish, but also pure and true literature and good learning. Unquote. Thanks to the protection of princes, be it understood. Quote, it is to their pious feelings that we are indebted for seeing everywhere, as at a given signal, illustrious spirits awakening and conspiring to restore good learning. End quote. In short, the appreciation of the joys of life which Erasmus manifests is fairly cool. Cool.
Moreover, he soon changed his mood of hopeful expectation, never to find it again. However, compared with current feeling in the preceding century, except in Italy, Erasmus's appreciation might rather be called warm. The men of letters of the court of Charles Seventh, or at that of Philip the Good, never tire of inveighing against life and the age. The note of despair and profound dejection is predominantly sounded not by ascetic monks, but by the court poets and the chroniclers, laymen living in aristocratic circles and amid aristocratic ideas possessing only a slight intellectual and moral culture, being for the most part strangers to study and learning, and of only a feebly religious temper, they were incapable of finding consolation or hope in the spectacle of universal misery and decay, and could only bewail the decline of the world and despair of justice and of peace. No one has been so lavish of complaints of this nature as Eustache Deschamps. Quote, Tant de douleurs et de tentations, âge de pleurs, d'envie et de tourments, tant de langour et de damnation, âge meneur près de définement, tant plein d'horreur qui tout fait faussement, âge menteur, plein d'orgueil et d'envie, tant sans honneur et sans vrai jugement. Age en tristesse qui abrège la vie. Time of mourning and of temptation. Age of tears, of envy and of torment. Time of languor and damnation. Age of decline, nigh to the end. Time full of horror, which does all things falsely. Lying age, full of pride and of envy. Time without honor and without true judgment. Age of sadness which shortens life. The ballads he has composed in this spirit may be counted by the dozen, monotonous and gloomy variations of the same dismal theme. There must have prevailed among the nobility a general disposition to melancholy, otherwise we could not account for the manifest popularity of these poems. Quote, Toutes les défauts, tous cœurs empreints par assaut, Tristesse et mélancolie. All mirth is lost. All hearts have been taken by storm, by sadness and melancholy. End quote. Towards the end of the fifteenth century, the tone is still unchanged. Jean Méchino sighs, as did Deschamps. Quote, o misérable et très dolente vie, la guerre avant mortalité, famine. Le froid, le chaud, le jour, la nuit, nous mine, puce, siron et tant d'autres vermines, nous guerroyons. Bref, miserere domine, nos méchants corps, dont le vivre est très court. Oh, miserable and very sad life, we suffer from warfare, death and famine, cold and heat, day and night sap our strength, fleas, scab mites and so much other vermin make war upon us in short have mercy lord upon our wicked persons whose life is very short he too is convinced that all goes wrong in the world there's no justice any more the great exploit the small and the small exploit each other he pretends to have been led by his hypochondria within an ace of suicide 
he depicts himself in the following terms quote, Et je, le pauvre écrivain, au cœur triste, faible et vain, voyant de chacun le deuil, souci me tient en sa main, toujours les larmes à l'œil, rien fou mourir je ne veuille. And I, poor writer, with the sad, feeble, and vain heart, when I see everyone mourning, then affliction holds me in her hand. I have always tears in my eye. I wish for nothing but to die. End quote. All that we get to know of the moral state of the nobles points to a sentimental need of enrobing their souls with the garb of woe. There's hardly one who does not come forward to affirm that he's seen nothing but misery during his life and expects only worse things from the future. Georges Chastelin, the historiographer of the Dukes of Burgundy and chief of the Burgundian rhetorical school, speaks thus of himself in the prologue to his chronicle. Quote, I, man of sadness, born in an eclipse of darkness and thick fogs of lamentation. End quote. His successor, Olivier de la Marche, chooses for his device the lament, tant a souffert la Marche. So much has la Marche suffered. It would be interesting to study from the point of view of physiognomy the portraits of that time which for the most part strike us by their sad expression. It is curious to notice the variation of meaning which the word melancholy shows in the 14th century. The ideas of sadness, of reflection, and of fancy are blended in the term. For example, in speaking of Philip of Arteveld, lost in thought in consequence of a message he had just received, Froissart expresses himself thus, quote, Quand il eut miraculé une espace, il s'avisa que il reciproit au commissaire du roi de France. When he had reflected for a space, he resolved to answer the emissaries of the King of France. Deschamps says of something that is uglier than could be imagined. No artist is melancholieux enough to be able to paint it. The change of meaning evidently shows a tendency to identify all serious occupation of the mind with sadness. The poetry of Eustache Deschamps is full of petty reviling of life, and its inevitable troubles. Happy is he who has no children, for babies mean nothing but crying and stench. They give only trouble and anxiety. They have to be clothed, shod, fed. They're always in danger of falling and hurting themselves. They contract some illness and die. When they grow up, they may go to the bad and be put in prison. Nothing but cares and sorrows. No happiness compensates us for our anxiety, for the trouble and expenses of their education. Is there a greater evil than to have deformed children? The poet has no word of pity for their misfortune. He holds, quote, Que homme de membre contrefait est en sa pensée méfait, plein de péchés et plein de vices that a man with deformed limbs is misshapen of mind, full of sins and full of vices. End quote. Happy are bachelors, for a man who has an evil wife has a bad time of it, and he who has a good one always fears to lose her. In other words, happiness is feared together with misfortune. In old age the poet sees only evil and disgust, a lamentable decline of the body and the mind, ridicule and insipidity. It comes soon, at thirty, for a woman, 
at fifty for a man, and neither lives beyond sixty for the most part. It's a far cry to the serene ideality of Dante's conception of noble old age in the convivio. The world, says Deschamps, is like an old man fallen into dotage. He has begun by being innocent. Then he has been wise for a long time, just, virtuous, and strong. Quote, Or, hélas, chéti et molles, vieux, convoiteux et mal parlant, je ne vois que folle en folles. La fin s'approche en vérité. Tout va mal. Now the world is cowardly, decayed and weak, old, covetous, confused of speech. I see only female and male fools. The end approaches in sooth. All goes badly. End quote. In another place, he laments, Pourquoi est si obscure le temps que lit un l'autre ne connaisse? M'émue les gouvernements de mal en pis, si comme on voit. Le temps passé trop mieux valois qui règne, tristesse et ennui, il ne court justice ni droit. Je ne sais, mais desquels je suis. And again, si ce temps tient, je deviendrai ermite, car je n'y vois fort que deuil et tourment. Why are the times so dark that men do not know each other? But governments move from bad to worse, as we see. The past was much better. Who reigns? Affliction and annoyance. Justice nor law are current. I know no more where I belong. If the time remains so, I shall become a hermit, for I see nothing but grief and torment. End quote. Pessimism of this kind has hardly anything to do with religion. Deschamps only gives an offhand pious purport to his reflections. Despondency and spleen are at the bottom of them, not piety. A contempt of the world, which is dominated by fear of weariness and of sorrow, of disease and of old age, is but an asceticism of the blasé, born of disillusion and of satiety. It has nothing in common with religion but its terminology. Even in ascetic utterances of a purer and loftier kind, such fear of life, such recoiling before its inevitable sorrows, is not seldom mingled. The series of arguments which Jean Gerson propounds in his Discours de l'Excellence de Virginité, written for his sisters with a view to keep them from marrying, does not essentially differ from Deschamps' gloomy lamentations. All the evils attaching to wedlock are found there. The husband may be a drunkard, a spendthrift, a miser. If he be honest and good, bad harvests, death of a cattle, a shipwreck may occur, robbing him of all he possesses. What misery it is to be pregnant! How many women die in childbed! The woman who suckles her baby knows neither rest nor pleasure. Children may be deformed or disobedient. The husband may die and leave his widow behind in care and poverty. Thus always and everywhere, in the literature of the age, we find a confessed pessimism. As soon as the soul of these men has passed from childlike mirth and unreasoning enjoyment to reflection, deep dejection about all earthly misery takes their place, and they see only the woe of life. Still, this very pessimism is the ground whence their soul will soar up to the aspiration of a life of beauty and serenity. 
for at all times the vision of a sublime life has haunted the souls of men and the gloomier the present is the more strongly this aspiration will make itself felt three different paths at all times have seemed to lead to the ideal life firstly that of forsaking the world the perfection of life here seems only to be reached beyond the domain of earthly labour and delight by a loosening of all ties the second path conducts to an amelioration of the world itself by consciously improving political social and moral institutions and conditions now in the middle ages christian faith had so strongly implanted in all minds the ideal of renunciation as the base of all personal and social perfection that there was scarcely any room left for entering upon this path of material and political progress. The idea of a purposed and continual reform and improvement of society did not exist. Institutions in general are considered as good or bad as they can be. Having been ordained by God, they are intrinsically good. Only the sins of men pervert them. What, therefore, is in need of remedy is the individual soul, legislation in the middle ages never aims consciously and avowedly at creating a new organism professedly it is always opportunistic it only restores good old law or at least thinks it does no more or men's special abuses it looks more towards an ideal past than towards an earthly future for the true future is the last judgment and that is near at hand it goes without saying that this mental disposition must have greatly contributed to the general pessimism if in all that regards the things of this world there is no hope of improvement and of progress however slow those who love the world too much to give up its delights and who nevertheless cannot help aspiring to a better order of things see nothing before them but a gulf we will have to wait till the eighteenth century for even the renaissance does not truly bring the idea of progress before men resolutely enter the path of social optimism only then the perfectibility of man and society is raised to the rank of a central dogma and the next century will only lose the naivete of this belief but not the courage and optimism which it inspired it would be a mistake to think that the medieval mind lacking the ideas of progress and conscious reform had only known the religious form of the aspiration to ideal life for there is a third path to a world more beautiful trodden in all ages and civilizations the easiest and also the most fallacious of all that of the dream a promise of escape from the gloomy actual is held out to all we have only to colour life with fancy to enter upon the quest of oblivion sought in the delusion of ideal harmony after the religious and the social solution we here have the poetical a simple tune suffices for the enrapturing fugue to develop itself an outlook on the heroism the virtue or the happiness of an ideal past is all that is wanted the themes are few in number and have hardly changed since antiquity we may call them the heroic and the bucolic theme nearly all the literary culture of later ages has been built upon them but was it only a question of literature this third path to the sublime life this flight from harsh reality into illusion surely it has been more history pays too little attention to the influence of these dreams of a sublime life on civilization itself and on the forms of social life 
the content of the ideal is a desire to return to the perfection of an imaginary past all aspiration to raise life to that level be it in poetry only or in fact is an imitation the essence of chivalry is the imitation of the ideal hero just as the imitation of the ancient sage is the essence of humanism strongest and most lasting of all is the illusion of a return to nature and its innocent charms by an imitation of the shepherd's life since theocritus it has never lost its hold upon civilized society now the more primitive a society is the more the need of conforming real life to an ideal standard overflows beyond literature into the sphere of the actual modern man is a worker to work is his ideal the modern male costume since the end of the eighteenth century is essentially a workman's dress since political progress and social perfection have stood foremost in general appreciation and the ideal itself is sought in the highest production and most equitable distribution of goods there is no longer any need for playing the hero or the sage the ideal itself has become democratic in aristocratic periods on the other hand to be representative of true culture means to produce by conduct by customs by manners by costume by deportment the illusion of a heroic being full of dignity and honour of wisdom and at all events of courtesy this seems possible by the aforesaid imitation of an ideal past the dream of past perfection ennobles life and its forms fills them with beauty and fashions them anew as forms of art life is regulated like a noble game only a small aristocratic group can come up to the standard of this artistic game to imitate the hero and the sage is not everybody's business without leisure or wealth one does not succeed in giving life an epic or idyllic colour the aspiration to realize a dream of beauty in the forms of social life bears as a vitium originis the stamp of aristocratic exclusiveness here then we have attained a point of view from which we can consider the lay culture of the waning middle ages aristocratic life decorated by ideal forms gilded by chivalrous romanticism a world disguised in the fantastic gear of the round table the quest of the life beautiful is much older than the italian quattrocento here as elsewhere the line of demarcation between the middle ages and the renaissance has been too much insisted upon florence had but to adopt and develop ancient motifs which the middle ages had known in spite of the aesthetic distance separating the giostre of the medici from the barbarous pageantry of the dukes of burgundy the inspiration is the same italy indeed discovered new worlds of beauty and tuned life to a new tone but the impulse itself to force it up to a thing of art generally taken as typical of the renaissance was not its invention in the middle ages the choice lay in principle only between god and the world between contempt or eager acceptance at the peril of one's soul of all that makes up the beauty and the charm of earthly life all terrestrial beauty bore the stain of sin even where art and piety succeeded in hallowing it by placing it in the service of religion the artist or the lover of art had to take care not to surrender to the charms of colour and line now all noble life was in its essential manifestations full of such beauty tainted by sin 
nightly exercises and courteous fashions with their worship of bodily strength honours and dignities with their vanity and their pomp and especially love what were they but pride envy avarice and lust all condemned by religion to be admitted as elements of higher culture all these things had to be ennobled and raised to the rank of virtue it was here that the path of fancy proved its civilizing value all aristocratic life in the later Middle Ages is a wholesale attempt to act the vision of a dream, in cloaking itself in the fanciful brilliance of the heroism and probity of a past age. The life of the nobles elevated itself towards the sublime. By this trait, the Renaissance is linked to the times of feudalism. The need of high culture found its most direct expression in all that constitutes ceremonial and etiquette. The actions of princes even daily and common actions, all assume a quasi-symbolic form and tend to raise themselves to the rank of mysteries. Births, marriages, deaths are framed in an apparatus of solemn and sublime formalities. The emotions which accompany them are dramatized and amplified. Byzantinism is nothing but the expression of the same tendency, and to realize that it survived the Middle Ages, it is sufficient to remember the roi soleil. The court was preeminently the field where this aestheticism flourished. Nowhere did it attain to greater development than at the court of the Dukes of Burgundy, which was more pompous and better arranged than that of the kings of France. It is well known how much importance the dukes attached to the magnificence of their household. A splendid court could, better than anything else, convince rivals of the high rank the dukes claimed to occupy among the princes of Europe. Quote, after the deeds and exploits of war, which are claims to glory, says Chastelin, the household is the first thing that strikes the eye and which is therefore most necessary to conduct and arrange well. It was boasted that the Burgundian court was the richest and best regulated of all. Charles the Bold, especially, had the passion of magnificence. The archaic and idyllic function of justice administered by the prince in person, even to the humblest of his subjects, was practiced by the duke, who was in the habit of sitting in audience with great solemnity two or three times a week, when everyone might tender his petition. He would deliver judgment in the presence of all the noblemen of his household, seated on a hotto covered with gold cloth, and assisted by two maîtres des requêtes, the warrant officer and the clerk kneeling before him. The noblemen were a good deal bored, but there was no help for it, says Chastelin, who expresses some doubt as to the use of these audiences. Quote, it seemed to be a magnificent and very praiseworthy thing, whatever fruit it might bear, but I have neither heard nor seen such a thing done in my time by a prince or a king. End quote. For amusements, too, Charles felt the need of solemn and showy forms. Quote, he was in the habit of devoting part of his day to serious occupations, and with games and laughter mixed, pleased himself with fine speeches and with exhorting his nobles like an orator to practice virtue. And in this regard, he was often seen sitting in a chair of state, with his nobles before him, remonstrating with them according to time and circumstances. And always, as the prince and chief of all, he was richly and magnificently dressed, more so than all the others. End quote. This haute magnificence de cœur, pour être vu et regardé en singulière chose, 
high magnificence of heart to be seen and regarded in extraordinary things. End quote. Is it not altogether, according to the spirit of the Renaissance, in spite of its naive and somewhat stiff outward appearance? The meals of the Duke were ceremonies of a dignity that was almost liturgic. The descriptions by the master of ceremonies, Olivier de la Marche, are well worth reading. His treatise, L'état de la maison du Duc Charles de Bourgogne, composed at the request of the King of England, Edward IV, to serve him for a model, expounds the complicated service of breadmasters, carvers, cup-bearers, cooks, and the ordered course of the banquet, which was crowned by all the noblemen, filing past the duke, who was still seated at table, pour lui donner gloire. The kitchen regulations are truly pantagruelistic. We may picture them in operation in the kitchen of heroic dimensions, with its seven gigantic chimneys, which can still be seen in the ducal palace of Dijon. The chief cook is seated on a raised chair overlooking the whole apartment, and he must hold in his hand a big wooden ladle which serves him for a double purpose, on the one hand to taste soup and broth, on the other to chase the scullions from the kitchen to their work and to strike them, if need be. La Marche speaks of the ceremonies which he describes in as respectful and quasi-scholastic a tone as if he were treating of sacred mysteries. He submits to his readers grave questions of precedence and of service and answers them most knowingly. Why is the chief cook present at the meals of his lord and not l'écuyer de la cuisine? How does one proceed to nominate the chief cook? To which he replies in his wisdom, when the office of chief cook falls vacant at the court of the prince, the maître d'hôtel call the écuyer and all the kitchen servants to them one by one. Each one solemnly gives his vote, attested by an oath, and this way the chief cook is elected. Who is to take the chief cook's place in case he's absent? The spitmaster or the soupmaster? Answer, neither. The substitute will be designated by election. Why do the panetiers and cup-bearers form the first and second ranks above the carvers and cooks? Because they are in charge of bread and wine, to which the sanctity of the sacrament gives a holy character. The extreme importance which attaches to questions of precedence and etiquette can only be explained by the almost religious significance ascribed to them, wherever tradition is strong and where a primitive spirit still prevails. They contain, so to say, a ritualistic element. All forms of etiquette are elaborated so as to constitute a noble game, which, although artificial, has not yet degenerated altogether into a vain parade. Sometimes the polite form takes such an importance that the gravity of the matter in hand is lost sight of. Before the Battle of Crécy, four French knights returned from reconnoitring the English lines. The incident is told by Froissart. Impatient to hear the news they bring, the king rides forward to meet them and stops as soon as he sees them. They force their way through the ranks of the men-at-arms and reach the king. What news, my lords? asked the king. Then they look at each other without speaking a word, for not one is willing to speak before his companions, and one said to the other, Lord, do you say it? Speak to the king. I shall not speak before you. So for a time they were debating as none could begin to speak par honneur, till at last the king ordered Sir Mon de Basile to tell what he knew. 
Messire Gautier Rallard, Chevalier du Guet at Paris in 1418, was in the habit of never going his rounds without being preceded, quote, by three or four musicians playing brass instruments, which appeared a strange thing to the people, for they said that it seemed that he said to the malefactors, Get away, for I am coming. End quote. This case, reported by the burgher of Paris, of a chief of police, warning malefactors of his approach, is not an isolated one. Jean de Roy tells the same thing of Jean Ballu, bishop of Evreux, in 1465. At night he went his rounds, quote, with clarions, trumpets, and other instruments of music, through the streets and on the walls, which was not a customary thing to do for men of the watch, end quote. Even on the scaffold the honors due to rank are strictly observed. Thus the scaffold mounted by the constable of St. Paul is richly shrouded with black velvet strewn with fleur-de-lis, the cloth with which his eyes are bandaged, the cushion on which he kneels, are of crimson velvet, and the hangman is a fellow who has never yet executed a single criminal, rather a doubtful privilege for the noble victim. End of section 3 Read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2021